What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. The doom loop in Oakland is alive and well as we watch some of the same players, but definitely the same tactics that devastated the progressive movement and some of their electeds in San Francisco try to play out or uh, or actually playing out here in Oakland. No one, not the left or the right, will deny that the streets are not looking pretty out there and something needs to be done. The big fight, it appears, is about how we got here and how we get out of it. The latest bit of focus on how we end crime is now on a program called Ceasefire, which was birthed in Massachusetts in 1996 and has two components, basically cops and carrots. The cops say, take our carrots or you're going to jail. The program was alive and well in Oakland leading into the pandemic when the program lost all of its carrots, remained only with cops and results nosedived. But why and how was Ceasefire dismantled? George Galvis is the co-founder and executive director of Communities United for Restorative Youth Justice or Courage. Good morning, George. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Kat. Thanks for being here. And we're also joined by James Birch, deputy director for the Anti-Police Terror Project. Uh, full transparency, though I know my listeners know this already, I am the one of the co-founders and executive directors of APTP as well. Good morning, James. Good morning, Kat. Thanks for having me. So this audit, I'm going to walk this through uh, for my listeners and and, pro- and probably stop and, and ask you all to comment as I make my way through this narrative because I've really been trying to track this. All of this conversation about crime, this audit comes out um, basically saying that the Oakland Police Department under Chief Leron Armstrong dismantled, um, dismantled ceasefire in favor of forming the Violent Crimes Operations Center. What the state is saying anyway about why this caused a problem is because the VCOC centralized 40 officers into one place, removing them from being at the beck and call of their area captains and beginning to respond rapidly to things that were happening on the the streets. The other thing that I think that people are pointing out is that the VCOC focused on responding after the fact Whereas in theory, ceasefire was um, was engaged in prevention. They're saying um, that that so area captains lost their teams and neighborhoods were abandoned. The other thing I want to point um, out here is that this did in fact coincide with former Mayor Libby Schaff pulling walking patrols, disbanding ceasefire, and disabling <clears throat> the area captains inside of her budget. City Council says that they responded by uh, finding the money in the budget, redirecting OPD to fully staff ceasefire, and they did not do so. Um, there's more stuff that I can go into about what happened, including Laron Armstrong um, and Libby Schaff engaging in propaganda campaigns as crime skyrocketed um, to say that the OPD had been dis- dis- defunded um, and that it was the progressive city council that dismantled ceasefire. That has clearly been proven untrue by what we listened to at city council on Tuesday. Um, And now, based on statements from the last city council meeting, Oakland City Council and the Oakland Police Department are going to pivot and go back to ceasefire. James, none of us on this call believe we can arrest our way to safety. What do you make of the ceasefire audit and the claims that ceasefire was working, 
and that it was the dismantling of ceasefire that caused crime to rise? Uh, that's a great question, Kat. Uh, a couple of things. One, um, it's important to note that the VCOC, as you mentioned, is like a crime investigation strategy. And so, as you mentioned, after the fact, after acts of violence, the theory from Laurent Armstrong was that they could investigate those acts, find out who was culpable, uh, uh, hold them accountable through uh, arrest and through the courts, uh, and through that process, uh, reduce violence in our streets, right? Um, uh, and, and first, I want to say that that proved to just be an unmitigated disaster uh, uh, and, and was completely ineffective. And the uh, clearance rates, the rates at which people are um, uh, arrested, charged, and convicted uh, plummeted uh, under this strategy. Um, the ceasefire program, uh, on the other hand, is based in prevention. And as you mentioned, that there's, there's two aspects to it, right? Um, there's the aspect that APTP is strongly in favor of, which is having uh, an intervention focused on life coaches, um, outreach workers, and... Um, uh, uh, and other resources given to people who are at the center of cycles of violence. So, and let me back up just a second, because I think it's important for folks to understand uh, the theory behind these prevention programs, right? Um, there's a glowing body of research that suggests that a high percentage of the homicides or shootings in large metropolitan areas or metropolitan areas in general involve groups that comprise a very small percentage of the population. So, for example, according to the ceasefire audit, uh, one-third of Oakland's homicides and shootings involve the same 48 groups of people with an estimated size of 1,200 to 1,700 uh, individuals, right? So violence interruption uh, is the practice of uh, uh, focusing resources on reaching those individuals uh, and trying to remove them from cycles of violence, right? There are several theories on how to do that, um, one of them is that you you flood those folks with resources and give them a viable way out of the cycle of violence. You give them uh, uh, financial opportunities, you give them life coaches, you give them counseling, you give them uh, trauma-informed care uh, uh, so they can see a way out of this endless cycle of shootings that they find themselves enmeshed in, um, like mainly due to where they live and where they grew up, right? There's another theory um, that... Uh, sure, resources are well and good, but what we really need to be doing is having the police uh, uh, aggressively or having having the message be sent that these people will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and devoting a, a, a tremendous amount of law enforcement resources uh, across agencies to ensuring that if these people do commit acts of violence, that they are aggressively prosecuted, Right. Uh, what we know and what the data shows and that what 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 uh, our comrades like George have been doing in the city of Oakland uh, for years is showing that that enforcement uh, pathway is not necessary to break the cycles of violence. Right. There is there's great data on programs like Advanced Peace, programs like Cure Violence, programs like uh, uh, again, like 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 courage and and urban peace movement, other organizations in the city uh, uh, are are engaged in um, that show that simply sending life coaches, sending resources to folks at the center of these cycles of violence, um, even without a threat of prosecution or or conviction, um, is a winning strategy that successfully moves people out of these cycles of violence and reduces the rate of violence in our communities. Right. So it's a little complicated when we talk about ceasefire because it engages in both strategies at once. 
right? They're they're using the uh, the threat of prosecution and in investing a tremendous amount of law enforcement resources, and they're also trying to provide um, um, supportive services. You know, as you said, you either take the carrot or you get the stick, right? And so um, I know that was a mouthful. I'm hope folks are still with me. Uh, it, it, ultimately, where we're at is is um, with the city of Oakland completely abandoning the ceasefire strategy and abandoning both the carrot and the stick, we lost what APTP believes is central to a winning strategy when it comes to breaking cycles of violence. We lost the 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 uh, flow of info. We, we lost the ability for our life coaches to understand who is at the centers of those cycles of violence uh, and to take part in the interruption of those cycles of violence uh, as the ceasefire program was dismantled. Thank you, James. George, I'm going to bring you into the conversation. Um, causality. Causality between when ceasefire was up and running pre-pandemic, full throttle, um, and they say that's why homicides were down, uh, versus us having the impacts of the pandemic and ceasefire being dismantled. Um, how, how how do you explain those numbers? And do you believe that the city's re-implementation of ceasefire full throttle is going to address the violence we're seeing on Oakland streets? So uh, a couple points I want to clarify. First and foremost, I think we need to stop referring to this as an audit because it gives it some credibility when it really was a propaganda report that was written and drafted by the very same folks who profit from ceasefire, the ceasefire consultants and the ceasefire nonprofit that is, a, you know, the, the nonprofit that's associated with ceasefire. So it's kind of like a conflict of interest. It's kind of akin to like the tobacco companies doing reports that say that there's uh, no correlation between lung cancer and cigarette smoking. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that's one of the first things I think I want to just kind of point out is really to take that with a grain of salt. The other thing I want to just kind of point out is that ceasefire and these same folks who did this most recent audit, it's a little bit erroneous. They haven't been defunded. It hasn't been dismantled. It's still around. Okay. Um, what they're saying is that they don't necessarily feel supported in the same way that they have in the, in the past. And I think that James described some of those different reasons, right? <clears throat> the creation of this new office by former Chief Laurent Armstrong and other things um, that made them feel a little less supported. But the other thing they're not really talking about is that during COVID, call-ins were not happening as frequently for obvious reasons. We were in the midst of a damn pandemic. You know what I'm saying? So calling 20 individuals into a room and then with a bunch of law enforcement and community, you know, and it wasn't, they, they never really had community. What they had is a few faith-based organizations or, you know, faith-based leaders, quote unquote, who were kind of there to represent community. So that obviously began to be, uh, you know, scaled back during COVID. So um, I say that, um, and I want to say this as plainly as possible, and with all due respect to Dallas Cowboy fans, they're kind of like Dallas Cowboy fans in that every single time things look good, they'd be out there popping their collar, trying to chase a dollar, right? They'd be out there really um, taking credit for the reduction in violence. Every time violence would be down, whether there was any correlation to ceasefire or not. And then every time crime would spike, and let's be real, over the over the years that we've had ceasefire, crime has gone up, crime has gone down, crime has gone up, crime has gone down. And they would kind of step out of the bushes when crime was down. They would take credit. They would put out a report, media would kind of buy it up without any critical questions, same way that they kind of always, you know, just push out sort of law enforcement press advisories without any critical analysis to really fact check them. 
And then every single time crime would spike and go back up, they'd disappear back into the bushes, right? There really is no empirical evidence or correlation that could be demonstrated with the effectiveness and impact of that. But what we do know, to James's point, is that positive community connections, opportunities, resources, services, and programs benefit folks and are the most impactful way to reduce crime. And so a very a, a strategy that does this and has done it very, very effectively that is also recognizes that the best practice is for there to be no involvement with law enforcement in this process, that in order for community workers to build authentic trust and rapport and credibility with folks on the block is that they can't have involvement with law enforcement or else it affects that credibility and it can even put them at risk. It can put their lives at risk if they're basically seen as, you know, as ops, you know what I'm saying? So um, is the Office of Neighborhood Safety in Richmond? And they just also published a report with much more impressive data. And that was a program uh, that was, you know, really uh, architect was a brother named Devon Bogan, came out of the Mentoring Center in Oakland. And, um, and I think that Ceasefire is now trying to move closer to that model, but without naming it, and to still maintain the law enforcement collaboration, which is effectively what made ceasefire problematic for a lot of folks. The other element is, yes, there was this element, uh, there, there was this arm of law enforcement in Collins, along with these faith-based folks, um, but there was also an operation ceasefire within Oakland Police Department that really just had such a bad name and a bad reputation in the community that it really undermined, once again, anything associated with the ceasefire brand. And over the years, if you just followed headlines, you'd see that there were cases in which OPD would do those no-knock raids. There'd be these major sort of, you know, um, operations. They'd kick down doors. They'd throw flash grenades underneath a baby's crib. In another case, they knocked over somebody's elderly Black grandmother and dislocated her hip. Things like that that were just only so that they could turn up a lot of just Nothing very serious, nothing that you're not going to find if they did a raid in Piedmont High School or at UC Berkeley among students. Some, you know, small amounts of substances that are controlled, you know what I mean? Um, and then the other thing that I should say, and this is something maybe that your audience doesn't necessarily understand, but this is the real. This is the real. Most young people in, uh, in the hood pack. They pack a gun. Not necessarily to do robberies, not necessarily to commit homicides, but because they do not feel safe. They do not feel sa they don't feel like the, the police protect them and they do not feel protected in general. And so that is something that they might turn up that might raise eyebrows that might look very incriminating. But there's a lot of young people. I know young people who are high achieving, who are you know, good hearted, who are not caught up in the underground economy, who are really doing their best navigating, you know, a school system that by design is, is failing them. Right. And um, and for safety reasons, a lot of young people are strapped up. So if they find a gun that might seem eyebrow raising to like folks who aren't necessarily in these communities, but in the community, in these communities that are most impacted, nobody flinches, nobody thinks anything about it. What the real, real question is, was that gun actually used in, you know, does it have bodies on it? Was it used in a way that really, you know, devastated, created some harm and trauma in our community? That's really the question. So 
And really what we need to be asking ourselves is why do our young people feel so afraid and unsafe that they feel like they need to carry a gun? And what are we doing about it? James, we are in this law and order drumbeat backlash um, that we see every time black folks or the left makes any progress in building a more equitable society that unfortunately has collided with uh, increased numbers of homicide. The ceasefire report audit, whatever we want to call it, if nothing else, does prove that prevention is critical. In this moment, what should the left, what should our electeds do with that messaging? What kind of policy should we be pushing for? And I got to ask you to do that in 90 seconds. Uh, right on. Um, it, what we really need to do is is make sure that folks understand uh, the differences between the models of violence prevention. Like, uh, uh, I believe it was the Department of Violence Prevention Chief, Holly Joshi, who said um, that she is uh, interested in looking at the best practices across the country when it comes <clears throat> to violence prevention. Um, and, and it's really imperative that we do take that look and, and a critical eye towards um, all the implementations of ceasefire across the country, cure violence, as I mentioned, advanced peace and other programs like uh, the uh, Office of uh, uh, of Neighborhood Safety in Richmond are implementing. Um, to really understand the best practices, George mentioned one thing that is uh, that we think at the center uh, is the is the concept of a credible messenger, right? And by credible messenger, I mean uh, someone who can come into community, speak to folks at the centers of these cycles of violence, uh, and really um, um, uh, create a connection that allows folks to trust them and allows folks to to create a partnership that that allows them to to move out of these cycles of violence, right? When um, there is a connection between the violence interruption organization and law enforcement. Um, that credible messenger loses their credibility, right? You know they can, you know, and, and as George said, in some instances, uh, it can put them under threat because they're seen to be working with law enforcement, um, even if there's some separation between the actual workers uh, and, and and the cops. And so, oh, geez, ninety seconds, cat. Um, and so. What we need to do is uh, be very clear about what ceasefire is. There's a lot of confusion that we hear across the city. Be very clear about what ceasefire isn't and be very clear about the options that we have on violence prevention models to move forward. Uh, and essentially the, the, the indications of making those choices. Are we going to try to arrest our way out of this problem or are we going to try to uh, resource our way out of this problem and give people viable solutions and pathways out of the cycles of violence that allow them to thrive? All right, y'all, I got to leave it there, but I'm going to have you both back because this saga is going to continue to play out. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. We've been speaking to George Galvez, co-founder and executive director of Communities United for Restorative Youth Justice, and James Birch, deputy director for the Anti-Police Terror Project. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.